welcome back to KK uh, Kino Kingdom episode 51. And uh, the reason, Rupert, I was a couple of minutes late after you said you're ready to rock today. The reason mm. is I was a little bit late in coming on is because I was watching the trailer for the 1975 movie Rollerball. Um, because yeah. Faye is recently getting back into roller skating with like a group of friends, which is cool. And, uh, and she's already banging at James Kahn. So. <laughs> yeah, never Scott Kahn, always James. Um, I don't think James Kahn's politics are a perfect symmetry with my own. <laughs> but, yeah, I can imagine that. Not quite dovetailing as you wish. <laughs> but yeah, it was it was interesting because I was thinking about. Um, she said, "Oh, you know, I want to watch some films with um, you know with roller skating in." And I thought that's really cool, actually, because you know when you get into something and you watch films that that have that. Um, I mean, yeah. usually for me, it's serial killings in New York in the early '80s, mostly. But um, yes, yeah, it's, it's specific, <laughs> isn't it? What I'm into, it's a specific genre. Try putting that one in Amazon Prime. So yeah, I mentioned Rollerball, and I want out of curiosity when I'm and whip it, obviously, and on Amazon Prime. Um, obviously, there's a remake with Chris Klein from like 1998 or whatever. And John McTiernan directed that. I think that's true. I think that's actually. Yeah, I think that's right. But yeah. I, I don't put any stock into anything anyone says apart from me or you. And sometimes I don't even listen to you. <laughs> and and they they both got four stars on Amazon Prime. And the original um, is three pound fifty, and the remake is. Two pound fifty, and I thought, right, well, that's the mark of quality, isn't it? I'm yes. paying, I'm paying the quid for like a better film. But have you seen either of them, the remake or the original? Well, Rollerball, yeah, I've seen mm-hmm. the original. I, I, I like it a lot. It's very, um, there's not that much rollerballing in it. It's much more to do with the kind of, uh, drama out off the pitch sort of thing. It's quite, um, it's quite a lot of, uh, kind of political and corporate meanderings and stuff it's 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 a really like intelligent movie uh and i like it it's, it's handsomely made and and the rollable sequences are pretty cool they're quite they're well done so who directed yeah. it do you know who directed it uh, it's no i want to say norman jewison is that him? Let me have a little look. I don't know. I wasn't testing you. I just um, I just wondered if you'd be able to roll it off. But it is, yeah, Norman Jewison. Good call. Yeah. What other stuff has he done then? Because um, I watched the trailer and it looked quite, it looked it looked weirdly um, like stylish, quite sort of minimalist in like the like it, it would cut to, like you say it would cut to the rollable sequence and then it would cut to like them talking in like a really. A, a very specifically set up shot if you know what i mean in a in a room and it just i don't know this isn't like a trashy this doesn't strike me as like a trashy silly film like i thought it might be mm, yeah i it, it, i it's it's a classy movie i mean he's like only, he's still going he is 95 is he really i like what the only other thing i know any other film i think i've seen him by him was in the heat of the night the sydney party one which is very good again classy as well what else has he done have you got his filmography in front of you i, I got sidetracked sorry because in right. he, i'm looking at pictures of him now and he is there's a picture of him in 2011 at the toronto international film festival mm-hmm. looking like the 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 neighbor from home alone and he's wearing like a powder blue sports jacket and then there's a picture in 2012 
and he's wearing the same powder blue sports jacket. And I like that. Good. He's, he's not driven by. He's like I'm wearing my I'm wearing my powder blue sports jacket. <laughs> I'm getting on, my money's you, worth. Yeah. Don't you worry because there's a picture below that I just noticed in 2016 wearing the same clothes, wearing a powder blue sports jacket over the same shirt he wore in 2012. Good. He's got use out of that. It hasn't even faded in the wash <laughs> from what I can see. Um, but yeah, he, a bottle um, powder blue can really fade that much. <laughs> yeah, he, he's got nowhere to go. Obviously, he did Fiddler on the Roof in 1971 and directed the original Thomas Crown Affair. Um, That's interesting, then. Didn't... Hang on. Am I... Did John McTiernan do the remake of the Thomas Crown Affair? I'm not sure whether that's true. Uh, Well, the remake... I I don't know. This is the 1968 original I'm looking at. Yeah. um, I'm just doing your research for you. You're sat in front of a laptop as well. Um, No, I've, I've just gone into the Thomas Crown Affair. Yes, John McTiernan directed the remake of the Thomas Crown Affair in 1995. Nine. So he's remade two of Norman Jewison's films. Good, he obviously knows what a pro is. Um, after Rollerball in 1975, the next film was called Fist in 1978, and that stars Sylvester Stallone. I've not seen that. Wow. A sly film called Fist, and you haven't seen it? Then he did Moonstruck. I know. Um, see, he's done a lot of stuff. So, yes, Um so that is why I was slightly late. Um, the other thing is as well, obviously, the news uh, came out a couple of hours ago about Bruce Willis effectively retiring from acting because of aphasia. Yeah. And uh, yeah, that's harsh, that is. That's, yes. um, that's, that's sad because, yeah, we, I mean, yes, it was obviously his career choices have been interesting of late. And it seems like he was packing because notoriously he's he's been making many many films a year for the past few years yeah. and it seems like he's just kind of like he was just packing the sort of tail end of his career i guess possibly raising funds for his treatment i don't know i guess yeah yes because i remember we talked about this briefly before there was there was a it was a couple of years ago we mentioned it, i think where he was on some sort of talk show and we said that he just seemed really distant like he wasn't you know things weren't sort of landing with him and i just wonder like how long he's been on medication or whatever for it so yeah it is quite yeah i mean i suppose with someone like this you don't know what what's the illness and what's the medication i guess but either way point is is that yes that's sad and it, it it kind of brings a new perspective to his career choices because it was very easy to be cynical about you know his decline but actually if he is having kind of neurological decline at the same time then fair enough but yes so um we're because we're looking at having a bit of a special retrospective not of his life because he's still going he's still alive but just of his career because to focus on some of the highlights yeah he's really positive because he's been in some absolute corkers that have that have literally just um span genre and also like generations and and still still continue to bring joy to the next generation so yeah it'd be cool to um I'm, I'm, we'll, we'll we'll bring on laszlo buckets and pay him his uh exorbitant fee and then we'll yeah we'll have a nice chat about brucey boy um and yeah and, and the arkins mm. uh is, is is next on my little list here uh because this was I get the impression this was an easier one compared to um, compared to the ones we had before, which I think was from was it um, Chloe Grace Moretz to Pat Morita, which which yeah a lot of people a lot of people struggled with. This so, one I did find easy, mm-hmm. although uh, one of my steps, I, 
the more I think about it, the more I think, is, is, was he in that? That's <laughs> one of those. Yeah, so. So, so yeah. we've, we've got, got a few got, responses. Got a few so this was Liv Tyler to Jackie Chan, right? Yeah. yeah. Uh, so I'm going to work out who these are from, sorry. Uh, this was this is from Utah Smith, a regular. All of these are regulars. Um, and he said, Liv Tyler was in Armageddon with Owen Wilson, who starred with Jackie Chan in Shanghai Noon. Two steps. Boom. Whoa. Straight in there. That is a route that will I'll be repeating. <laughs> uh, this one is uh, Transvaal, who said, Liv Tyler is in Armageddon with Peter Stamari, who is mm. in the tuxedo with Jackie Chan. Another two-stepper, different route. And um, and I got to say Peter Samari, and that's fine because I like thinking about that man. Um, this one is from Adrian, and this is Jackie Chan was in Rush Hour with Chris Tucker. Chris Tucker was in Fifth Element with Bruce Willis, and Bruce Willis was in Armageddon with Liv Tyler. Uh, that is identical to mine. <laughs> <laughs> really? But it also does confirm that it was indeed Chris Tucker and Fifth Element. Yeah. I thought it was him because he's a flamboyant bloody, what is he, TV host? Prestige TV radio. It's, it's Chris Tucker's, um, Chris Tucker's, remind me about this. I won't get sidetracked now. I'll go through the rest of these first. Yeah. Um, uh, and this is from Max. And this is Liv Tyler is in Armageddon with Wilson, who's in Shanghai Noon with Jackie Chan. Boom. This is from our occasional co-host, Laszlo Buckets, and it is Howdy. Here comes a three-stepper. <laughs> I love it. Uh, Liv Tyler was in Armageddon with Bruce Willis, who was in Fifth Element with Chris Tucker, who was in Rush Hour with Jackie Chan. There Who'd have go. thought that Armageddon would turn out to be good for something? <laughs> and I had a last-minute one from Regan today, uh, and he said, I've tried two routes here. The first time I looked back on myself and it was going to be 10 steps. So Liv Tyler is in Armageddon with Owen Wilson, who was in Shanghai Noon with Jackie Chan. Um, and, he, and the second one, which was a, was sort of a failed attempt, he said that he he picked Armageddon because he thought Arnold Schwarzenegger was in it. Wow. And then he would have gone expendables to Jet Li to the Forbidden Kingdom with Jackie Chan. So... Sorry, I thought he was going to sneeze then. Yeah, Chris Tucker. Uh, so yours is yours is identical to the... Um, yeah, Liv Tyler. And I'm again with Bruce Eve, who's in Fifth Element with Chris, uh, Chris Tucker. Tucker, who's in Rush Hour with Jackie Chan. Um, um, I've never seen Shanghai Noon, and I've never heard of Tuxedo, so... Oh, really? Yeah, that was not helpful. Oh, I, I always get in my head the Tuxedo mixed up with the Magical Ice Scream suit, uh, so, and I still don't know which is which, and I haven't seen either of them. So I, it's not really a problem in my day to day activities, but it's something I'll need to look into after the podcast. Maybe that could be a theme for your next block of films is films named after items of clothing. Yeah, I actually got into um not and it wasn't it's not an argument. It was my, my comment on Twitter was taken the wrong way. And um there was someone who said I've just realized that uh the Imhotep in the mummy isn't Billy Zane. And I said, no one has ever mixed up Arnold Vosloo and Billy Zane before. <laughs> and he said, oh, sorry, I didn't realize saying that was so passe. 
And I thought, no, I wasn't attacking you. I was just saying that it's something that everyone has done. In fact, the yes. only time I, I sat aside and thought, right, let's get this sorted, was when I played Boiling Point on the PC, obviously, from 2005. Um, which is with the, but yeah, Chris Tucker's um, filmography is, is really brief because I watched Rush Hour, I think it was last year at some point. I talked about it on the podcast. Mm. I think I watched all three, actually. And then I realized, like, apart from Fifth Element and Friday, I've seen him in nothing else. And it's true. If you yeah. go online, his, his filmography is really brief. But he, I reckon, he maxed out his cash ice allowance for the fiscal year when he did Rush Hour series. I think he did all right at that. And, yeah. and, yeah, and, I mean, they're not the greatest films, but there's good chemistry with Jackie Chan. And I know that they became very close friends through that series. So that's nice. Well, I think everything that Jackie Dunn does is just nice. <laughs> just a, a nice man. Yeah, um, I mean, when I was thinking of this one, I just thought I literally only know Chris Tucker from Rush Hour. And and was he in Fifth Element? <laughs> that's my question myself. <laughs> that, that's the only question that happened. Um, so the, just a little aside that came in off the back of um, uh, Transvaal has, has been listening to our entire back catalogue and i've had some he's sending me some good messages but oh by the way if you do want to uh, contact us it's the men who talk at outlook.com and he said this message and it really tickled me and i hope it tickles you i'm listening to an episode from almost two years ago and you and rupert said how simon Pegg will have to branch out now that he's middle-aged i think i'd watched that film he was in called the inheritance where right. he just plays someone in an unconvincing wig who sounds like Hugh Laurie in House, who lives in a hole in someone's garden. It wasn't very good, Rupert. Mm. Uh, Will, I don't remember. Will Lily Collins, a really unconvincing like district attorney, and she was about 15. And yes. Yeah, I do remember that now. And he said, you know, as a listener, I thought, that's true. He's been doing the same thing for 20 years. If he did something different, it would be cool. And then a few minutes later, he sent me a picture of Simon Pegg's upcoming films. <laughs> And it's Mission Impossible 7, an untitled Star Trek sequel, and Mission Impossible 8. That's <laughs> so, amazing. <laughs> so, so he is branching out then. That's amazing. Yeah, it's branching out to different sequels. Um, yeah, and so, yeah, that is, um, that's, uh, that's my little preamble sorted. Before we go into the actual coverage of movies, I do have, I, I have watched something on the Savalas, and I enjoyed it so much, I wanted to mention it. Just to to our okay. listeners, right? Um, obviously, I've got a young son, and I watch a lot of Peppa Pig. Um, right. Like, it, like, there's. I'm not going to go into the story, but like, everyone seems to know Peppa Pig and all the characters, and it's it's going to be the cause of my eventual suicide. But recently, I I was like looking for you know something else to watch, anything else, and uh, I noticed that they'd made a Cuphead cartoon of the the video Ooh. game Cuphead. So. Okay. I went on, and they're like 14-minute episodes. I think there's like, it's just one season, 12 episodes, boom. And it is absolutely fantastic. Like, I wasn't even a big fan of the game because, going off top of something, it was was like a really difficult, like, boss rush game, effectively. But Mm -hmm. I love the presentation of it. And they've literally just transposed that into a a really, really funny and well-written cartoon. And so, yeah, it's on Netflix, and and, and definitely recommend it. And uh, there was a scene in there that, I, I laughed at so much. I I kept rewinding it because it was really quick. And I just, it's a scene where Cuphead and Mugman are walking. They, they've got really high pitched voices and, and the, the comedy is really snappy. It's very quick and punchy. And <clears throat> there's a scene where they walk in through the cemetery and it's only a few seconds long and it's clearly a haunted cemetery. And <laughs> they're just sort of walking through it. And 
they're like trying to make out that they're like they're not afraid of the other one of where they are at all and they're walking along and they're sort of the eyes are darting around and there's clearly ghosts and like lightning and spooky castles in the cemetery and they're like oh, i'm not scared at all i quite like this actually and then it's like yeah i feel i feel really comfortable and so yeah you know and really enjoy myself and this is a really good idea to walk through the cemetery but as they're talking about it their voices are getting more and more like uh high-pitched and panicky and like quivery and they were like tears in their eyes in these big cartoon eyes and they, they end up just like shouting and like their the hands are vibrating and they're just like eyes streaming tears and the last thing one of them says before the scene ends and they shout it is in fact i love it so much i'm thinking of buying a house here <laughs> <laughs> i i was weak uh, so yeah i mean it's worth it it's worth it just for that joke but yeah there's a lot of really good visual comedy that the soundtrack is phenomenal so um, is it um i mean obviously the game is is done in this kind of slightly creepy 30s animation style absolutely and the whole the whole story is that um uh, cuphead manages to find a way of um owing the devil his soul and like sort of backstories that the devil's trying to constantly get to him to get to, to steal his soul so it's quite dark but then in kind of a lightly kooky way um but it just yeah the devil's really funny as well he's just got this really nasally voice and there's like a lot of really good visual gags but yeah absolutely recommend it um it's just i've I, I watched it through three or four times now and i've got no problem with just doing it again because like i i know the songs now and i know the jokes that are coming up how funny they're going to be and how well written they are so yeah i'm I, i'm totally on board with cuphead on netflix Yes, and it's the advantage of having children who are too young to really understand quite how sinister the things are that you're watching. As long as it's animation, it's yeah. all very innocent. Uh, and and also and also it's at the point where it's like, oh, should we put something on? You know that you want to watch? Oh, book up head because I, I want to watch it. Yeah. So. I do like <laughs> how Netflix in particular is really greenlighting a lot of these adaptations of like video games stuff that couldn't really have been done before because it would have been too much of a risk putting it in cinemas yeah so obviously you had like castlevania which was a, a good one obviously you got the witcher um but also mm -hmm. now we're gonna get bioshock as well so i reckon you'll watch news. that Rupert. i think i will i yeah. i i don't know much about it yet but if they can get gore verbinski in to do that um then that would be fantastic because i know he, he was attached to it long ago and it's, like, uh, a cure for wellness was effectively a, well, it was really just like a Bioshock movie in disguise, really. Is that the one with Viggo Mortensen in it? Yeah, I think so. Was he in it? The Dane, what's his name? Dane de something. As long as you're not going to say Dane Cook, I don't care. No, it definitely isn't that. What's his name? It's, um... Dane Judy Dench. Um, Dane DeHaan. Never heard those words before in that order. I'm sorry. He he sort of looks like a slightly more awkward-looking young Leonardo DiCaprio. Oh, okay. He's got some charisma, but um, Viggo Mortensen was not in it actually. Jason Isaacs was. That's the guy. It's it's all right. It's a vision. It's too long. But, <laughs> um, but it visually is quite stunning. Um, is so are we, are we? I'm guessing that's not a film you were going to talk about. That's just no, it is not. All oh, right, okay. So, well, like I said, I talked about Cuphead and my, my love and admiration for it. So I'm happy to let you go first. 
Sure. And I think this is one that I know that you've seen and possibly you have even talked about on this podcast before. Three Days of the Condor. Oh, this is going to be a good episode. <laughs> yes. Yeah, more than happy to talk about this film. This is a 1975 espionage thriller directed by Sidney Pollock, who also directed Robert Redford and Jeremiah Johnson, quite famously. Um, yeah, so it's about a CIA researcher, played by Robert Redford, who he he's working in New York, and he returns from lunch one day to find that his colleagues have all been slaughtered by Max von Sydow. Um, and that means... He's the lucky one. He's but he becomes the missing asset, and basically, Max von Sydow and Co. They're hunting him down. So Robert Redford's on the run, trying to work out who's after him, trying to stay alive, trying to work out whether it's all an inside job, etc. All gets very twisty. It's a fast-moving film, and it is. It, I'd say it's quietly thrilling because there's a lot of the tension is it all in the kind of menacing dialogue. I think it's quite clever the way it's structured because what happens is basically the first kind of the opening act is totally dominated by this scene of just like complete slaughter where they come in and just gun down all these people. So what that's clever because it, what it does is it, it's, it's like it sets out the stakes, if you like. It's like these people mean business, basically. And it's like they will they're completely heartless and will just they'll just do this to people. So like. Once Robert Redford's on the run, you're like you really know what he's up against. So that's kind of cool. So it really means that there's constant tension throughout the rest of the film. There's a lot of some really good monologues about the nature of espionage and the value of covert operations. Um, and yeah, one of the main subplots involves Robert Redford taking a woman hostage, played by Faye Dunaway, and basically using her to get about because it's set in New York and in Washington as well. I'd say the relationship between Robert Redford and this woman is somewhat problematic. <laughs> of course, it, it, naturally he happens to choose this mega hot, like really endlessly empathic woman who happens to fancy him as well. Um, so it's, it's a bit of a Hollywood star pairing move, I would say. And I, I wonder if a different kind of relationship might be more interesting. It's a bit of a, it's sort of just a bit of a, a Hollywood thing, I guess. But the depiction of New York in the 1970s, love it, obviously. Like Nightmare New York, brilliant, really grimy. And there's some fantastic old tech throughout the film. Like, and the cool thing is it's all presented as really cutting edge for the time, but they're like really clunky keyboards and these dot matrix printers and stuff love it <laughs> so it's like really really like chunky brown old tech good so i enjoyed that a lot um yeah. in the end it's a very enjoyable twisty and, and clever thoughtful thriller and it and it, it it retains its intelligence and its poise and and that sense of quiet menace all the way to the end it doesn't kind of just cop out so that's cool I'd only say it's slightly weighed down by that that central relationship between Redford and Dunaway. It's a bit tired and a bit predatory, a bit old school sexual politics. 
So that part. Well, is even good. even for the seventies. Seventies, <laughs> really. Yes, it's uh, <laughs> yeah. So, but it's it's not so bad. I mean, they obviously have a lot of chemistry. It's just it's a pity it has to be in such a kind of rapey scenario. But there you go. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I enjoyed yeah, I, that. Three Days of the Condor. That's on Netflix now. Yeah, I, I, I really like that film. And it was kind of out of... Uh, like, Robert Redford was, um, considering how much of an icon he is, he was a bit of a... It kind of just... He just passed me by. Because I always forget the name of this film. The one I watched a few years ago, uh, where he's on a boat. You'll know this straight away. Last Date, not Last Date. Oh, um... It's called... There's, like, No More Hope. It's a three-word title, isn't it? Yeah. Or, all is when lost. Ho- when, no, when hope floats. Um, <laughs> no, it's, yeah. it's definitely yeah, all, called is, all is lost. Yeah. Yeah. And um, um, that was very good. I and mean, he was what? He must have been seventy something at that point. Must, I wouldn't be surprised if he was in his eighties. He was. He was a very old man. Um, but with um, yeah, with Robert Redford. I mean, I, I remember from things like Fair Game, which is a film I'd, I'd, I'd uh, not Fair Game, Spy Game. My God. Fear Game, that dreadful film with Cindy Crawford in 1985. Um, that was bad. Uh, yeah, so I remember him from like Spy Game more than anything else. So to go back Sneakers to the 70s. Bad. And I, yeah, well, this is the thing. This is why I watched it recently. And also mm. to, to to go back then and watch, um, well, Three Days of the Condor is what set me off with my, uh, this has gone back a few years now, and it's something I continually want to revisit is, um, those sort of 70s espionage films but but yeah specifically about three days of the condor yeah everything about it i was just really taken in by the atmosphere of it and even what the jobs at the start what they do with them um, you know yeah. just like looking through books to find like possible russian code or something it just seems like such a non-job yeah. and yeah just yeah just well, he kind uh, of addresses I, that quite a lot in quite an amusing way that like he hasn't really got a proper job he doesn't even know what it, why he's doing what he's doing it's yeah, quite it's amusing like, do this yeah you should um yeah, if you want some Redford, do you check out Jeremiah Johnson? It's good. This is Western. It's basically just him wandering around the wilderness on his own. It's, so it's what it's it's what Wolverine Origin. It's what Wolverine should have been. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, but with um, this as well, I just got to say before we move on that this scene, um, this this film, Three Days of the Condor, there's a sequence in it where he's wearing double denim and he's wearing like a, yeah. it's like a like a really wide collar denim shirt tucked in, tucked into this awesome belt buckle into flared jeans with brown boots. And there's a sequence where, is it Faye Dunaway? Yes. Yeah, says to him, oh, so, you know, what are you going to do next? And he turns around, he's on a bar, so he turns around, he's got a whiskey in one, and he's like, oh, I, I don't know, really. I would have that image on my wall as a poster, and it would affect my sex life positively. <laughs> it was, it's like, that's like the, per- that's the perfect man right there. It's like it was. He looked amazing, and he just. But yeah, it's that whole thing about I'm just addicted to those films where someone is thrown into a situation way above their head, way above their pay grade, and they just have no idea where to go next. And the seventies were the masters of that. So um, no, absolutely, uh, I I do really like that film. (coughs) Um, I watched Patriots Day, uh, 2016 film directed by Peter Berg and one of his many. Uh, many outings with Mark Wahlberg and I have to say that I put this on thinking it was going to be like a just like a like a silly Mark Wahlberg action film and I thought mm-hmm. have I duffered myself um, and I almost I was like oh hang on is this going to take a turn now but I, I ended up quite enjoying it because um, 
so this like I I've never I wasn't aware of the the, the Boston bombing uh, during the marathon at all. So it was all it was all pretty new new to me. And the film follows uh, Mark Wahlberg, who's a, a cop with he's 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 obviously like ripped and physically fit but he's got like a like a nag nagging knee injury and he's been put on the marathon as sort of a um what's the word like a punishment for basically being a little bit too keen when he's on active duty um and he's you know he's got a he's got a wife at home and thinking about having kids and he's at this marathon a bomb goes off and it's just how he the government the police and the community deal with it and the aftermath of it and um mark Wahlberg, there was when i was reading about this afterwards mark Wahlberg is a composite character and apparently a lot of a lot of people have a problem with that but i didn't because i knowing mark Wahlberg as an actor i i was kind of waiting for him to like be the the sort of weak link in the film, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. Like I was waiting for him to kind of overstep the mark and think, oh, this is going to turn into an action movie. But it's it's obviously very respectful of what it's talking about, and the whole thing about of a, of a, of a community uh, pulling together. I just found it a, like a respectful, straight and, f- and quite focused movie. Mm-hmm. Um, and 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 there were certain scenes in it where you've got um, you know, well, there's like the loss of like the lives of children or. Uh, couples that have that have had uh, like horrendous injuries and 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 how they meet up and I was kind of thinking is this is this going to get like really is in don't rely on the sentimentality because you know that, that this is not the time for that and it never does and at the end of the film there's a, an epilogue where they just they, they interview some people of the credits who were actually involved at the time and it was it was really interesting to see how how true to life and how, and how accurate things were and i yeah it's I, as you know i don't tend to watch heavy duty films but i was surprised by this and mm. it, I, I i i like the tone of it and it, it, it may be maybe that hollywood sheen over things is what made it palatable for me because i'm i'm such a pussy these days and i'll, I'll just get upset at anything so yeah I, w- I was surprised with this especially because it was like peter berg who obviously when he works with mark Wahlberg, usually it's just like some you know he's the hero and that's not really the case in this film he's just he's yeah. just a a practical person because he knows the city of boston so well as they hunt down who's behind it i think that I mean, we do mock Mark Wahlberg quite a bit because he's not, he hasn't got the greatest range, shall we say, of any dramatic actor. And we say that he should really stick to comedy because he's very good at that, being deadpan. But I will say that his work with Peter Berg, because I've also seen Lone Survivor and Deepwater Horizon, again, both based on real world events. And he does manage to definitely get the best out of Mark Wahlberg in dramatic roles, possibly because of they tend to be quite um, kind of straight, sort of heroic, um, uh, kind of very manly men. There's not, he's not really going outside his comfort zone, should we say, but he does, he, he reels it Mark in to step it up. He, he, it's, yeah. it's cut above his other dramatic work, I would say. His work with Peter Berg, they clearly like each other. So, yeah, um, yeah, I, I enjoyed Lone Survivor. I thought Deepwater Horizon was pretty good as well. What so, would you say was the the, the best out of the three? Because I haven't seen the other two. Um, 
I think Deepwater Horizon is the silliest in terms of its like the things it does with the truth. But again, really technically well made. I think Lone Survivor is uh, is a very very it's so intense that film as a as a kind of combat movie. But it's such an incredible story as well, and it's um and it's pretty much as it was on the screen. And I remember reading about it afterwards and realizing that actually some of the stuff that happens in the movie isn't even as bad as the stuff that happens in real in real life. Because I think there's one scene where we see him like um, kind of hobbling to this nearby village to get away from the bad guys, the Afghan army. And um, but in reality, what happened was he he like crawled eight miles or something like that because he'd been shot in both legs. So it was actually a lot worse in real life. So, yeah, Lone Survivor is definitely worth a watch. And it's got a great cast, um, including Ben Foster, which is always good value. He doesn't care. He doesn't that man, care. he's not shy about throwing himself into roles, is he, at all? Not at all. Okay. What's next? Oh, I've got a yeah, another yeah, true-to-life tale. Oh, nice. Okay. Let's see nicely. <laughs> yes. This one is called Alive, and it's on Netflix. Um, this is the, the nineteen ninety three film. This is the nineteen ninety three film from Frank Marshall. You, you can't get away from mountains, can you? I know. You um, this uh, this is one of two Frank Marshall films I've watched this week. Actually, weirdly, Good. this one tells the story of. It was made in nineteen ninety three, but it tells the story of the, from nineteen seventy two of the Uruguayan rugby team crashing in the Andes in a plane. Um, and the survivors then spent 72 days scrounging for food, which led them to um, eat the bodies of the dead um, at one point. So and then they finally able to, were able to kind of conjure a plan to call for help. Um, yes, this film, I'm not sure it would be made like this today, because for a start, most of the actors are American, as far as I can see. And for Uruguay, they're all speaking English. It's like. Okay, it takes a bit of adjustment, that does. Um, but there's also, I found there's a very melodramatic style in the performances and, and also in the script and in the music and the direction. You know, there's, there's scenes where people will like, uh, to show that they're despairing, they'll, you'll just see them like sink to their knees while the, the music soars and it's like, eh, okay. Um, it actually does a pretty poor job of portraying the growing desperation that leads them to the eating of their colleagues, uh, which I think is quite a key measure of the film's success or failure, really. Uh, and there's a lot of discussion about the ethics of cannibalism, but there's, there's very little like internal interrogation. There's a lot of tell, not a lot of show, put it that way. And I, I think the most interesting element of, the, of it is really the, the kind of typical disaster movie problem solving stuff, like what they need to do to get off the mountain, i.e. go and find the rest of the plane so they can get a transmitter so they can, you know, call out something. I, I hated the cheesy, whiny, sentimental music. It just totally undermines any sense of existential horror in the story. And the script gets really bogged down in this strange like religiosity like people would just say things like how oh, do you feel like god is everywhere today it's really odd 
and there's a lot of talk of fate and things like that and and so the, the, there's more kind of revelation than there is psychology really in the film and i think it speaks perhaps to the very hollywoody mainstream nature of the film that it it constantly focuses on this vague hope of salvation rather than the like reality of this crushing procedural horror of survival so and and you'd think you know it gets to like day 50 it pops up on the screen day 50 and you think they look a bit unhealthy or skinny but now nah, they just look like totally ripped levi models with perfect white teeth fine and and they and all of these problems they they prevent the performances from shining through i think particularly ethan hawk um who's one of the main characters and oh, okay he, um I think possibly it's because his character, um, the guy actually worked as an advisor on the film, so presumably he would have been around. So it's like it's like Ethan Hawke is ghost walking through it. He makes no real impact, um, which is a pity. I mean, some of the the major events are technically handled quite skillfully. Like the air, the air crash itself is pretty well done, and and there's and like really terrible events will happen very suddenly and quite scarily, like an avalanche, things like that. And they're quite well staged, so there's that. But it all feels a bit worthy in a boring way and dated in all kinds of ways in the, the tone and the style. Because it's an incredible story, but I I didn't get any sense of the actual ordeal of it at all. I got a sense of a Hollywoodization of the ordeal. So, yeah, it hasn't held up, unfortunately. Um. <clears throat> Just the thought of having an advisor on that film, where you know they'd, they'd be on the mountain filming on location or whatever, and then um, and then Ethan Hawke would go up to him and say, "So at this point, then you know this is like day three. What was what was it like?" And the, and the advisor says, "Yeah, no, no, thanks for thanks for having me. Thanks for asking my advice. I'm keen to be part of this. It's crap. I was starving." That's right. Okay. I was, and then, <laughs> yeah. I was and then, absolutely hanged. I really yeah. was. <laughs> yeah. um, I, so, so, and then on like day fifty, so what were you like at this point? It's like, well, I was quite bored, but I was also I was bloody peckish, mind. I was peckish, Pete. Peckish Pete, they were calling me. And yeah, just I was bored. I was. I, was, I tell you what, I, I I wouldn't have mind cleaning my teeth as well. Yeah. <laughs> That's the thing. Yeah, we've run out of talc by then as well, so we were having to put put snow behind our balls. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, no, I've never I've never seen this because again, it was. Um, it, I just remember I was actually working, um, or I remember being in a video shop in '93. I would, would have been. Ten. I remember my mother worked in a video shop at the time. And I was in there, and like seeing the poster and um, just hearing like, oh, this is about people like so desperate to survive that they end up like eating each other and I and the, the thought as a kid scared me so much that even as an adult I think I've always sort of shied away from it now mm. you said Ethan Hawke is in it I was like oh and then you said mm. he doesn't make an impact in it and I was oh mm. so yeah I mean the, yeah, the actual cannibalism part that was obviously what all the marketing was about but actually it's not really that much that bigger part of the story once it's it's like it's, it builds up to it and then it's done and then it's just like <laughs> after that you just see him chomping on bits of flesh and you're like that's someone's ass that is <laughs> yeah, yeah, they're like bag, bags you the face. Yeah, I know there's plenty of thigh left. No, I'm just gonna go straight for the face. I think um, there was um, there was uh, the one of the in terms of in films where someone is is eating something. There's a film. I think it was a Clive Barker film, and with um, uh, Books of Blood. 
they started to yeah because there was a nice run of Clive Barker stuff and they said it was going to roll on and they released a few good films like um the Midnight Meat Train and stuff and then they just stopped and think okay I was enjoying that but there's there's a segment in the books of Blood called um Fear and it's just about this this guy in university getting people and putting them in their uh you know in the in the worst possible situation they can imagine and it's so innocuous how he just he goes on a date with this girl and he goes back and uh, and she's good takes to this house and he locks it in this room and in the middle of the floor on a plate is just this like really nice looking steak but she's like a staunch vegan and it just it's just like a montage of her losing her mind and she's out in there obviously wasting away and he's just not opening this door and then it, when the steak is like covered in maggots and it's basically just like slimy and just like white then she eats it really hungrily and i was i was i was i had to look away from the screen i thought oh, that was so, that was so real it was so fun and she's eating it and she is like eating this foul thing and but she's in ecstasy just because it's satiating her hunger and i was i, I think i actually gagged at one point which i've never i've never really done at a film i don't think so yeah if you can find it clive barker books of blood if you fancy a quick gag don't watch it when you're eating a ham sandwich with mustard <clears throat> um uh yeah so yeah okay well that's gonna continue my my streak of almost 30 years of not watching a live um this uh, I watched a film that uh, Faye was much more familiar with than I was it, because it's based on a I think it's a seventies TV show called Fantasy Island. This is um, this was pushed at me through Netflix. Mm. Um, have you come across this yet? Uh, I, I, it's one that's recommended to me time and time again. Not not by a human, I'd wager. I venture it may. <laughs> Be. No, it is a guy. It's, his name is Algorithm. <laughs> Al Gore, like the the American, and then Itham. It's the name, <laughs> his birth name. He shortened it so the Americans can understand, like they do with their film titles. Um, yeah, this was. Um, I, I had no idea what this was about, so I said, "Oh, flicking through Netflix and facing a fantasy island." You know, that, I used to love that TV show, and, and I said, "Oh, what's it about?" And she said, "Basically." people go to this island and you know they have fantasies and they they basically they get twisted and they're not ideal and i thought oh well you know that seems like a recipe for like a, a decent throwaway horror film incorrect as skeletor would say i put it on we got like we got the, we got the the hot wings in and, and and the nachos press play and what followed thank you jeff wadlow was it wasn't i didn't even make it through the whole film it got to about 15 minutes before the end and i just said can we stop watching this? And Faye said, I was hoping you'd say that because I didn't know if you were enjoying it or not. And I said, no, I've not been enjoying it. Um, but then before I go into it, I mean, I'm just looking at is, is um, Jeff Wardlow's career. You, you've got, he made Fantasy Island. Before that, he made Truth or Dare. And after it, he made Bloodshot with Vin Diesel. And Bloodshot is a film so bad that I didn't even bring it up on the podcast. Um, I just thought I'm not talk- I don't really want to think about it anymore. So yeah, it, it, it's very much the, the it's. I know um, the name Jeff Wadlow. Oh, uh, do I? No, maybe I don't actually. I'm looking at his filmography and I really don't. I think you're thinking about Neil Patrick Harris. Oh yeah, that must be. <laughs> um, we should have a, an episode dedicated to people with three first names at one. You know, Jan Michael Vincent, Neil Patrick yeah. Harris. Yeah. Uh, what was his name? Michael Clark Duncan. And the yeah. bloke from who played Tubbs in Mammy Vice, Philip Michael Thomas. Um, yeah. What's what's the Sully actor? 
Tom Hanks? <laughs> Commando. Oh, uh, David Patrick Kelly. Yeah. See, he's even got a girl's name in there. He's like, right, really? I'm going to upstage these blokes. <laughs> Look out, Jan Michael Vincent. Here comes David could Patrick actually make, Kelly. You could actually make a pretty good podcast out of that. <laughs> People with three first names. Bloody hell. <laughs> <laughs> it. Well, write it down, write it down. Um, so, yeah. Uh, on the ideas board. <laughs> So Fantasy Island is yeah so it's um it's an island run <clears throat> by Michael Peña and um it, he he plays this sort of um overly um charismatic and pleasant host who uh, gets a lot of people on the island like uh, Maggie Q Lewis Hale uh, Lucy Hale uh, Austin Stoll and so on and just says to them look you know you've won this vague competition you probably don't remember entering where they have to write down their fantasy they get dropped off on this beautiful uh sort of it's like a hawaiian paradise and then they just they just sort of wait until the fantasies kick in and um it, it's it what happens is it's it's obviously it's basically a worse version of wish wishmaster um because there's no andrew Dimoff in sight and it, it's just them sort of like mulling around this paradise drinking cocktails uh and, th- and then the the fantasies will just take a turn um in the most boring possible ways like uh there's for instance there's 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 two guys <clears throat> uh two brothers and mm. they they're on there and they just they one of them is gay and one of them isn't and and their their fantasy is basically just it seems to just be shagging so you don't see anything it's it's the mm-hmm. film is too sort of it's too like sort of stale and gentle for that so you, it's just them like they're drinking cocktails and insinuating that they had sex with beautiful people and then a drug lord turns up and says oh the only reason you know the fantasy twist is that well if you if if you were in this situation where you had all this money and all these women, then you would have to be a drug lord. So now in the fantasy to follow mm-hmm. it through, another rival drug lord has come to take you down. And it's like, right. Um, one of the other guys in there is what was always wanted to be in the army, but he was, he was pressured by his mother not to. So he became a policeman and he always felt like he failed his wishes. So in this, he he's in the army and he gets captured by his father who was in the army and gets treated as a POW. Um, but it, it's all done in such a really tediously slick, like, I can't, I don't think I've ever seen a film like this where it feels so much like everyone is just like, it, it's like, how about this? People go to an island, they have they have these like these dreams, and then they just work against them. And that is that. Like, there's no, mm. there's no, and I was watching the film waiting for like an extra layer to kick in for thinking, okay, that's quite clear from the first five minutes what's going to happen. But like, let's have some sort of twist. Let's have some extra layer or another level to it. Yeah. No, nothing. It sounds it a bit really... like a Twilight Zone episode or something. Yeah. Or stretched... like, oh, that's cool for like 15, 20 minutes, but. Not for 90 minutes. Yeah. Um, oh, and it also does the cardinal sin that we've discussed before in this podcast, where characters with ulterior motives act sinisterly when they're by themselves or oh, sorry they, they keep up the pretense when they're completely alone right isn't yeah. it right um yeah so it's just it's just a very it's a very very bad film and michael brooker's in it and when he came on the screen i, I sat bolt up right i thought oh thank god something i'm interested in and this is a minor spoiler but i'm just gonna say that the moment that michael brooker jumped off a cliff so did my interest in this film <laughs> Oh dear! Oh dear! Oh well, dear! Yeah. Well, so my like complete avoidance of this um, 
recommendation time and time again is correct really it it thinks it knows i want to watch it but i know i know i don't want to watch it I see there's no it's I, can't, I don't even know I was thinking about it just before you know when I was sort of writing down the films I'd seen for, for this episode and I was thinking maybe I'm being like overly harsh on it and then I thought there's like for example maybe there's a, a younger generation who would not have seen a film like this where someone's fantasies get twisted like Wishmaster is is that for me so I thought well you know maybe maybe they it would appeal to them and I thought no because they should just watch Wishmaster shouldn't they and have a better time. Yeah, that's pretty and much then, then, bad movie to be honest. Not, not watch Might as well watch Wishmaster. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if, if that's that should be the every if you were like, oh, I wonder what the new Batman film is like, and then you you go online and you go to like I don't know like Rotten Tomatoes or whatever, and it's well, it's not a Wishmaster beta. And you're like, uh, <laughs> I won't bother then. <laughs> yeah, like Wishmaster's the barometer. It was <laughs> yeah. acceptable. Cross genre barometer. <laughs> Great band from the 70s. Uh, great <laughs> great German act. <laughs> um, right. I won't be watching that. Brilliant. What, what is it on anyway? If uh, Netflix. Even, it's on Netflix. Netflix it? Okay. Arachnophobia. Oh, nice. Is not on Netflix. Because I watched this on Blu-ray. I don't think it's on any streaming service at the moment. You can probably pay for it on Prime. Um... And possibly you should, because it's a better film than Alive. It's also directed by Frank Marshall. Um, Arachnophobia was his first film, actually. Alive was his second. This so uh, Arachnophobia was made in 1990. And have you seen this? This this is a film I've seen like a very long time ago. Okay, like, okay. Yeah. Oh, this is good then. So you should, because it's it's been a while since I watched it. Yeah, um, but but also the yeah. reason I've watched this in Street is because I cannot stand spiders. Oh right, okay. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I'm, sure, I'm sure they feature in this somewhat. They do weirdly, even <laughs> though the title suggests a fear of heights. Then, um, so <laughs> yeah, it starts in Venezuela, and obviously Julian Sands is showing a photojournalist around the jungle, and the journalist is bitten by a giant spider. He dies, and the spider hitches a ride in his coffin all the way back to his sleepy hometown in rural California. And this is where Jeff Daniels and his family have just moved. Jeff is the new doctor in town. Um, and little does he know that the Venezuelan spider has hooked up with a girl spider in his barn. And now they're making babies, which grow into horrible house spiders, which kill people instantly. Um, so yeah, that's pretty much the setup. Um, now, the thing it reminded me of, actually, the whole Spider in the Barn thing was a, a lesser-known Wes Craven film called Deadly Blessing. I don't know if you've seen that. No, um, that, that, that doesn't even sound familiar. It's it's quite good. It's uh, it's creepy. Uh, it's, it's more about, it's not really like a schlock horror. It's more about like a creepy religious sect. Anyway, but there's one uh, unbelievable scene in Deadly Blessing where... Sharon, young Sharon Stone is like trapped in a in like this barn and she's like locked in the only way out is through like a load of spider webs and she has to like climb over a load of stuff in the dark through a load of spider webs and it's one of the most just 
uncomfortable. I mean, as far as arachnophobia goes, it's such such an uncomfortable sequence and so disgusting. It reminded me of that. Arachnophobia never quite hits that particular height, unfortunately. But it is a pretty decent movie, and it's kind of a comedy What's horror. What, what film was that? Sorry, you just referenced. It's called Deadly Blessing. Right. Oh my god. <laughs> it's horrible. Anyway. Um, and yes, but this is arachnophobia is kind of it's very PG rated kind of horror comedy. It's got some good visual jokes that I liked, like there's especially when the spider first arrives in the town, like there's a scene where it's like a shot of a cat flap and like a dog comes out and then a cat comes out and then this giant spider comes out. I thought that was amusing. And then the spider's like snatched up by a bird, like carried. It bites the bird bird falls out the sky and then the spider gets like squashed by the bird on the ground i just like that kind of stuff it's kind of goofy and amusing um the cinematography is quite luscious and it really captures a kind of late summer golden glow of california so that was nice and script wise uh it's all right it does the job like it does what it needs to do in terms of sketching out the local characters they're broad and clear, but they're not caricatured sort of thing. Oh, so, no, do you know what I thought you were going to say then? Yeah, it's yeah. just really, yeah. I mean, they're right, they're slightly over the top, but not not caricatured. It's not just like, oh, this is their one feature sort of thing. Now, I, it's been a while since I've watched this, but I never noticed before. But there's this whole, like, one of the main sort of subplots is pretty much a critique of the u.s healthcare system because i didn't actually, expect you to say that <laughs> well because jeff daniels arrives in town basically and he's he's instantly told by the elderly doctor there oh i'm not retiring so you can't have all my patients so he so jeff daniels is desperate for patients because of course he needs people to be ill in order to get paid because that's how it works over there so he but he does manage to get a few patients but of course they start dying because of these spiders. So he gets labeled Dr. Death. And none of this would work, of course, with a centralized NHS, unfortunately. So, um, Is that ever brought up at length in the film? What, the nature of British healthcare? Um, <laughs> not really. <laughs> There's no, it may be a deleted scene, deleted dinner party scene. Um, there, there's some really good schlocky scares, like, um, like that push the kind of boundaries of PG. Like there's one bit where there's like a body and a spider scuttles out of the nose, that sort of thing. But yeah, some of the, like, in terms of the actual arachnophobia part, the swarming scenes towards the end are a genuine nightmare as far as I'm concerned. And and I can imagine they're probably a nightmare to shoot as well because trying to control like hundreds of uh, pretty decent sized spiders. Anyway, so it's, it's the kind of horror comedy they don't really make anymore. At least they don't make them without tedious self-awareness anyway. Even John Goodman is funny than I remember in this film. He comes along as like a exterminator and he keeps things light. But he also ends up being quite genuinely heroic. For some reason, I thought that was Wayne Knight. Wow. Okay. In my head, yeah. Oh, yeah. I can see um, why he made that, yeah. but um. Yeah, and he gets good, good amusing lines. Um, yeah, and all the cast are kind of, they pitch it just right. Julian Sands is amusing, oh. like sardonic. Um, yeah, it, and so the cast is all good. In the end, it is a story about how horrible nature is and how it wants to kill us and how it's better to live in the city, really, which is not a particularly ecological message, quite dated, but I completely agree with it. 
<laughs> just don't go near the countryside everything wants to kill you um yeah i find i find it quite i find it quite a rewatchable film it's been too long so even though it's really pretty average to be honest but it's just it's really efficiently made it's it feels like a, just a good hollywood product it's it's a gender of pure entertainment and it works on that level um it's good good handling of tone um and it's got jeff daniels being his amiable self so yeah it's recommended um, worth a watch again holds up my my personal spider story is that as you know rupert um Faye owned a um chilling rose tarantula we called it penny penelope pit stop and um yeah and and i would like i would sometimes feed it but mostly i just looked at it in the glass case and i couldn't deal with it and one day i was going to work and i noticed she was lying on her back and i thought oh bless her she's dead and i'm gonna have to tell Faye, and she's gonna be upset and this is this is not nice but as i opened the door to it to her thing she sort of twitched and i said oh no she's not dead she's just fallen on her back and can't get over so i'm going to have to flip her over <laughs> and um, i must have stood there for like a solid five minutes just looking at this poor spider on her back in the corner of this cage and i thought I don't know if I could do this. I don't know. I might just like leave her and then pretend I didn't see it and then hope she doesn't die. And then when Faye says, oh, but like, oh, she was fine this morning. But I thought, I can't do that. You should and have phoned me and I would have just said, let it die. <laughs> the only option. Yeah. Burn your flat down. Uh. <laughs> don't even bother claiming the insurance. Um, yeah. And, and I, I had to get I had to get like two chopsticks. That's all I had to like turn her over. And I was I was doing it, and I remember actually sweating down my forearms as I was like, and I was like trembling, and like having like my my breathing was getting really shallow, and I thought I'm so I'm so frightened. And then <laughs> when I when I flipped her over, and she didn't even because I thought I'm gonna flip her over, and she's gonna run up the chopsticks into my mouth and legs and my brain, and I'm dead. But what actually happened was like I just flipped her over, and she just like sort of really peacefully just sort of sauntered off to the corner, and I shut the glass case, and I sat down like on my bum legs out straight in front of me and i properly just sort of went (laughs) (laughs) it was it was one of the most intense experiences of my life so i'm probably not going to watch arachnophobia (laughs) yeah i it's weird because i'm I'm not keen on spiders but i wouldn't say i'm arachnophobic uh and it, it doesn't it's not like when i watched jaws and it genuinely made me still makes me slightly afraid of the ocean it's like i think it's too silly like by the end of it you know you've got these birding spider spiders like leaping at jeff daniels it's quite ridiculous <laughs> um, um I'll it was fun well really quickly as well that i i was not afraid of the I, I nearly drowned when i was 14 and i still they didn't put me off like the ocean and the water but i went snorkeling in my late teens and my early 20s and we got dropped off in like not even the middle of the ocean, like out around a cove and dropped. And I looked under and I, I had like a what's it called like goggles on and I was just pottering around in this really deep water. And I just put my head under and looked down and I could see there was like a like a whatever they call like a sea shelf and how deep it went. And mm. it was like an, it was weirdly it struck me as a really intense inverse fear of heights, even though yeah. I know I couldn't fall. It still had the same effect as height on me, and I, I had to get just get back on the boat. I basically just a pussy now that I think about it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, kind of thing. Unless, I, but even if I sit in the toilet, lift my feet up, my fear of heights kick in. <laughs> um, <clears throat> that's not true. Um, text me, girls. Um, I'm going to move on to a film now. We watched a, you know, talked about a couple, one that's good, a couple that are bad. I'm going to talk about one of the best films I've ever seen 
And that is the film Spartan from 2004, written and directed by David Mamet and starring Val Kilmer. And um, I watched this film a lot when I was a teen. I say a lot, probably, uh, you know, five or six times. But I remember thinking, I, I do really like that film. And I and I've, I think I've revisited it over the years, but I've always been like a bit tipsy or whatever. But I, I thought, I really fancy it. And I actually paid cash money for this. And I'm really glad I did because it, it finished. And I thought, yes, that is one of the best films I've ever seen. Have you seen this? No. Right? Um, it, the whole plot is that Val Kilmer is a, a, a guy called, well, it's, everyone just calls him Scott. And he is some sort of special ops soldier that just trains recruits. And um, it li- li- is like completely, utterly dedicated to his job. Just is absolutely like we, you know, that. Like that's the focus. That is it. Um, I-, I would describe him as basically Jack Reacher without the smugness. So he, okay. it- it's just him, and he's like purely about practicality and minimalism, just getting the job done. And uh, a senator's daughter goes missing, and he's just hired by the government to just find her and bring her back. And that- that's pretty much the plot of the film. But th- there's there's so much to love about this film because there are it's it's made up of these these set pieces as he tries to put these plans together to track down the girl played by a really young Kristen Bell. Um, it, it's like these plans just fail because of things outside his control. Like there's um, uh, scenes where he's just right says right okay we're gonna have to there's a guy who deals in female trafficking who was one of the last people to see her so he he sort of has to go undercover go in this bar and that sort of gets botched. And then uh, there's so he says, right, there's a, there's a prisoner who might be able to help us get contacts. And they, so they set up this false robbery so he can befriend this prisoner and that gets botched. But it's all in this really wonderfully stagey, um, like like 10 minute, almost 10, five, 10 minute set pieces that go back to the main hub. And then it's like, right, what can we do next? We need to find this girl. And uh, Ed O'Neill turns up as well as an amazing um, character who just basically walks around the room saying, where's the girl? Where's the girl? Where's the girl? And people say, I, I, I'm not, we're trying to find him. I'm not, not, not really sure. The dialogue is really terse and full of military jargon. And uh, apparently David Mamm was was writing writing uh, rewrites of the script like on the day, just saying, oh, we're going to do this, do this. And there's just something about the film that's so understated and minimalist in its approach that it, it just it it feels really small and there there are so many beautiful little moments um that, that really stand out like um where <clears throat> at the start of the film we see Val Kilmer just taking on this new recruit and just trying to explain to him that you know the, the you, you you know you're married which is already already mm. like a no-no this is you have to be all about what we do all about the job yeah. and um there's it's full of like unreadable expressions like when the, when they're when they're doing something and one of the plans fails at a certain point it just cuts to val kilmer and he, he's absolutely perfect and then he doesn't put a foot wrong it's just just these unreadable expressions of like you don't really know how he feels <laughs> and um there's there's just yeah like i said full of like really beautiful moments like they they go into this beach house where they think the girl's being held and 
he gets caught as he's sneaking around trying to find it. And he just has this really weird dialogue with this guy holding a gun saying, oh, I was just walking my dog and I, and the TV was on, but why was the TV on? Do you think it's strange that I'm here? Is this strange? Do I, is this making you feel uncomfortable as he buys time for like a sniper to take the shot? And, and it's just like really odd how, how it kicks off. Um, and when he does get to Kristen Bell, takes her to a hotel and uh, she wakes up and instantly sees him and starts screaming and to just silence it, he just punches her as hard as he can in the stomach to take the wind out of it. And and it's like, apparently they had a military advisor or an advisor that deals in this sort of these black ops missions. And he was just, and you can kind of feel it that yeah. it's just like, whatever happens is it's, it's kind of like the taken thing. Whereas that was with, you know, uh, the way Liam Neeson moves through taken is this just force of absolute minimalism, dropping people as um, economically as possible. Yeah. The whole film feels like that in the music, in how right. it's filmed, in the dialogue. It's like stripped it's doing what needs like, to be done, doing what needs to be done. And it's it's so addictive to watch. Um, yeah, like there's a scene at the end where he gets double crossed um, and they're, they're shouting uh, that, you know, Val Kilmer's character is actually trying to he's trying to kill you. He's working against the government. And he just looks at Kristen Bell and says, even if that were true, you're coming with me. <laughs> and it's just like lovely moments like that so yeah i i am um, yeah i'm a really big fan of this film and even the it's got one of my final my favorite final lines again really understated and it also has one of my favorite end sequences where it does like the running joke of me not like in anything that blows up bigger than a shed it's just you know it's building to this 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 ending where they're finally going to get the girl safe and things kick off and I was reading um, other people's thoughts on this and they, they were like, oh, it just kind of doesn't build to anything. And it's just a bit bit of like, a you know, like a flat tire at the end. And I thought, no, the whole film has been like not about that. So why it would ruin it if it just, you know, did mm. the typical third act nonsense, you know. Um, and I, yeah. I think this is fantastic. The only thing the only thing I would say is um, there's a sequ- the moment at the start where he meets his new recruit and he picks up his hand and he taps it on a wooden door because the guys were in a wedding ring and he and Val Kilmer says to him see you hear that so can the sentry that you're going to be sneaking up on uh, and I thought well I probably if I was sneaking up on someone I wouldn't wrap my knuckles on a wooden door to be honest yeah, a ring on no ring. Ring. <laughs> yeah. And, but then what, what kind of accentuates that silliness is in the very next sequence it's where he's creeping up on a beach house uh creeping up to be just walking through a full building trying to find a girl without making a single sound and yet he's wearing a really creaky leather jacket that he specifically put on for this mission i thought <laughs> shell just, suit bottoms just put on corduroy just put on corduroy mate yeah so but yeah I, I, i'm taking a bit a little but yeah spartan i think is a if you like understated action films there's something 70s about it there's there's something like i said there's something about the score the way it's presented the way it's written i just i find it really moorish because it feels quite unique in how it's presented so it's it's a big recommendation from me and that is on amazon prime i think it's like three quid so Fine. jump on that bus yeah oh well that sounds like it's right up my strasser yeah um hello Hello. Oh, I thought you'd run off then. If I could, if I was sat here and I was like unmuted and said hello, and then, uh, you know, and I could hear, <laughs> and then I just got a message off your wife that said, oh, he's hung himself. 
<laughs> he's <laughs> in himself again. <laughs> you know he's like down. He, you know he's like when he's had a drink. Um. <laughs> of squash. Uh, um, right, where were we? Um, I shall talk about something on Prime. Good. Um, which I think is quite a new release. I mean, made a while, uh, maybe last year, but a new release on Prime is something called Spencer which is um, about Diana, Princess of Wales. I thought you were going to say Spencer Confidential then with Mark Wahlberg, but, um, no. which I which I really enjoyed. Peter, that was a Peter Berg film as well. Um, they all are, mate. They all are. <laughs> um, yes, so Spencer, yes. It, this is set in 1991, Christmas 1991, and it's a fable. I'll come back to that later. It charts the experience of Diana as she navigates her way through this miserable holiday period with the royal family. And of course, the like the level of control over her life is utterly stifling and she's possibly losing her mind. It's a semi-fictional account of that Christmas. And it, it's fair to say that the ending of this film is different to the one that occurred in her own life. Uh <laughs> This is a really, really nicely made movie. It's slow. It's beautifully made. Like it has a it has a bit of a a Kubrickian eye to it. There's lots of like sliding disembodied tracking shots. Basically it's shot like the shining, except instead of the Overlook Hotel, it's Sandringham Palace sort of thing. So and it even has some moments of legit horror in it. Like because um Diana is sort of haunted by the ghost of Anne Boleyn, who was, I th- believe, the one of Henry VIII's wives who was beheaded. So, yes, you can see where that's going. Anyway, um, I mean, Diana is, she's kind of losing her mind because she's convinced rightly that she's being watched by mysterious presences all the time and everyone seems to be against her. So it's quite an intense movie. Christian Stewart plays Diana, which isn't the most obvious choice, but it's quite a strange performance. It kind of, I found it a bit aggravating at first. It's very breathy and mannered and kind of stagey. But then it kind of grew on me and I realised that it does actually suit the heightened tone of the movie. It's not really meant to be reflecting real life as such. Um, So, yeah, I got used to that. But it does bring me that does bring me to the problem with I had with the film, which is this fable thing, because it presents itself as a, a fable based on a true story. So suggesting it's basically a historical fiction, as in there's certain some elements are true. I mean, the people in it are true, one assumes mostly. Uh, the place is a real place. The sense of ostracization that she experiences is presumably true to an extent um but the individual events especially towards the end clearly did not happen and yet there are other events along the way that are quite plausible so we're left in a quite an awkward zone between fantasy and reality depicting people who are still alive whilst also deconstructing the mental state of someone who isn't still alive so i mean if you if you really know your recent royal history, then it may be easy enough to reconcile the two sides of the story. But 
I have literally no idea about Diana's life at all. So it really wasn't instructive or informative for me at all. And I didn't know what was true and what was part of this so-called fable. I mean, you could argue that it tells a general truth about the nature of entering, entering into the institution of royalty and everything that needs to be sacrificed. And I suppose there are some modern parallels with, say, Meghan Markle here, I guess. Maybe, but I don't know. The depiction of every adult member of the royal family and virtually every member of staff makes it look like they're a bunch of like evil, conniving automatons um, programmed to to feel nothing, essentially just be totally apathetic at best about her well-being. And I just couldn't, I can't quite bring myself to have that much sympathy for the privileged lives of royalty, even if they do have to hand over their passport, I struggle with it a bit. I mean, the the bits of the tragedy of Diana's life for me was more to do with like the paparazzi, the way that she was hounded in that way, and the way her family was hounded. I can understand that, but I don't know. <laughs> I, I struggle a little bit when it's like, oh, you know. I've got no freedom, but I don't know. It swings and roundabouts, isn't it, really? Because it's a pretty good life at the same time. The fact that the film didn't really do enough to make me feel that the depths of her despair probably says something about that it it isn't quite psychologically sound enough. And, And I think the problem of having it partly real, partly fantasy creates a distancing effect which i struggle with and it wasn't engaging enough to like if you look at it as a total fantasy piece it's not engaging enough or doesn't say enough to for you to think right no it's too this, no. yeah it's too cold and weird for that I, in a way i kind of wish it had been weirder and it turned into some sort of like crazy musical well, I'm yeah. thinking, well, there is actually apparently a Diana the Musical on Broadway. I think it lasted about 10 weeks or something. It's just terrible, apparently. Anyway, but. It's a bloody long play. Do they have like toilet breaks and stuff? <laughs> I was, you know, because as I said, it does have moments of like actual kind of horror or mild horror. And I was thinking, wouldn't it be cool if this was like a kind of really, really messed up Suspiria type? thing where she's kind of trapped in essentially what's a haunted house um and that's all part of her madness i think it would have been more enjoyable because at the moment it's just a bit of compromised like it doesn't really it's like we don't really know that much about her because she's obviously not here anymore but when it comes to her family it's like they can't really say that much about them either because they're still alive. And so they just tend to be a bit cold and distant. I, 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 I tend to avoid these sort of films where there's, um, it's basically just guesswork, you know, where it's mm-hmm. just like a film, like with a framework of guesswork. And I think, well, I mean, I'm watching, I'm watching someone just saying, oh, maybe it was like this. I don't know. And then they just film it. You think, well, yeah. I don't know. I'm not really getting anything from that. So, yeah. Well, the, uh, the fable uh, thing just seems like a bit of a cop out because, <coughs> Just, uh, just basically say, well, we don't know, don't know how she was really feeling or what she was fantasizing about. Yeah, so, so, so why, why bother with the film then, really? Mm-hmm. I, I think that um, I'm sort of with you in that the things that are relatable in that they 
the the intrusion the the extreme intrusion of the paparazzi which has yes. been something that like has personally like i remember i remember being i mentioned this a few times on the podcast but i i've used to work on a video store and i i was the only male there like i was 16 17 and there was i worked with a lot of older women and so the only magazines there to read were like you know now and take a break and all that sort of stuff and i remember like just leafing through them and just thinking that god these are like really depressing for for both genders um and, and then there was one where i think it was keanu reeves um sister or members family who had leukemia or something and there were just pictures of them like clearly really zoomed in on like a, a super lens on a boat spending time together and they were just it was this double page spread focusing on how ill she was and then i turned the page in disgust and the next page was um it was uma thurman coming out of uh you're saying one of the most beautiful in the world women in the world but look at her now and she was coming out of a gym and they were like it was like circles around her sweat patches and i thought I think that's me done, to be honest. <laughs> and that's always been my like really dismissive yeah, view you, of, you, of the press. You must have cancelled. He cancelled your OK magazine subscription. <laughs> right I said, no more heat. And then I and I said, I'm just going to buy two copies of Nuts and Zoo instead. Oh, but um, yeah, they were basically like pretender oh, magazines for people like who are, like too 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 cowardly to buy proper porno bags. Oh, yeah. Um, so yeah, I, I I these are the kind of you know like the guess guesswork. Um, uh, films that I, I avoid anyway, but it, it just sounds like it's not even interesting enough to stand at its own two feet. It's like, okay, I don't really, I don't really subscribe to what it's telling me, but I'm having fun mm. getting there, or I'm, 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 I'm at least, you know, thinking about what it's the, the food that it's giving me, like I'm taking that in. But yeah, it just sounds like something that isn't very good, Rupert, from what you said. Which is a I shame, mean, which is because Kristen Stewart was like a last week's film of the week with Underwater. Yeah, and then she's good in it, and in it's exceptionally well-made film. I just think it's a little bit slow and not quite mad enough uh, for my liking. I think it could have gone if you're gonna if you're gonna fictionalize something like that about the decline of someone, like basically essentially someone's like descent into madness. Just make it a bit madder, really. <laughs> I've got two two minutes now. How many movies have you got left? I have two left. Nice. I can do these two really quickly. You sure. can do one, and then I've, I can do two at once as well. Then, okay. um, <clears throat> so I watched Pacific Rim for the first time because you know how, I, um, as Transvaal has told me that when you listen to the episodes of this podcast over, over time over the last couple of years, you can tell that we both go through phases. Like my, I tend to go through like a martial arts film phase. You tend to go through horror phases or whatever. At the moment, it's just anything with mountains in. So I'm waiting for you now to come on next week and say, I watched Napoleon Dynamite, that scene where it's just him and his uncle sat on a step and his uncle says, I bet you could throw this stake over those mountains. And they're literally like tens of miles away. What a fantastic <laughs> film. <laughs> um, so... Um, yeah, I watch Pacific Rim because I, I, I do have occasionally go through these phases of really wanting to watch monster movies. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I can't remember. Like, I, I literally remember this film coming out and it being really hyped and me just thinking, oh, I'm not really. As you know, like the the the, the, um, the kaijus and the mechs in this film are, are larger than like an average garden shed from B&Q. So I thought, no, I'll give that a skip. Yeah. Or if I do watch it, I'll have to be sat really far away from the screen. And um that's actually that's how that's actually how the um 
it's, it's how they calculate the size of the kaijus themselves. I mean, it, as soon as it's larger than a garden shed, it becomes a kaiju rather than just a regular reptile. <laughs> oh, really? Like yeah. God, Godzilla comes out the water and like screams, and then uh, a couple of Japanese people look at each other and say, "Don't panic. I know it looks like an underwater sea creature that's come to like just completely wipe us out, but at the moment." It's only the size of like an allotment greenhouse in Norwich. And then they're like, oh, thank God, I panicked then. And then it, it comes out and then like, right, now it's time to panic because it's about 200 sheds tall. So <laughs> yeah. we're going to we're gonna have to skadoodle. I'll get my Uber on. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I haven't watched this for a while. I, well, I've never seen it before, rather. And I thought I do fancy like a big monster movie. And mm-hmm. I like Guillermo del Toro a lot. So I, I, I pop this on. And um, uh, yeah, so for those who are, and it's a very, very basic plot. Um, these things called kaijus are coming through an underwater rift. These colossal sea monsters that are just just ripping the world apart and trampling over everything, not unlike the video game Rampage from 1986. And humanity has come back with these things called mechas, which fight back uh, equally sort of sized, but but to to control something that size, you need two minds that are in tune with each other. One, it'll it'll basically blow one's person's brains out. So that you need to have two people in sync, contro- controlling it in unity. And uh, Charlie Hannon, whom I fancy, uh, whom mm-hmm. I fancy from from the gentleman, um, is uh, one such pilot. And he works with his brother. They get attacked by something, and his brother gets killed. And Charlie Hannon goes into exile. And Idris Elba, who, whom I also fancy, um, comes and sort of brings him back in at, as humanity's last-ditch attempt at taking down the kaijus. Now, I, I only want to say a few things about this film because there was only a few things that really stood out. Like, I, I kind of enjoyed it as, as like, you know, yeah. as a silly Hollywood sort of movie. But um, it, 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 what got me was the... There, there were a few things. It, it, the whole reason that, like, um, they basically shut down the Jaeger project with these mechs because they said, right, they don't work. Right, they, every, we, we're spending billions and billions on these massive mechs that take down the kaijus and they get ruined and people are getting killed. And, you know, now they're pretty much coming through weekly, like, with, with valid passports. So it's going to get to the point we're going to have to just let the kaijus through. And, um, and and so they say, right, we're going to build this. We're going to knock the Kaiju pro- the um, Jaeger project on the head. No more mechs because people are getting killed. It's, it's expensive. What we're going to do now is build a wall. Now, I don't know if that sounds familiar at all in recent <laughs> politics. But um, they say we're going to build a wall. And so we catch up with Charlie Hennem as as this wall, the sea wall is being built. That's going to keep out these 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 Kaiju coming through. And um, and I was watching it and I thought. That's just a load of like really rough scaffolding and brick, uh, and I've like I've seen the intro- introduction of this film, and I, and the, these kaiju's can like shoot, shoot nuclear energy and like melt. You know, they like they literally can walk through buildings, and you're just building, like what seems to be, like, building one wall of a building, <laughs> one wall of a building, yeah. And then it cuts, and it just shows one of them just walking through without even noticing, yes, and then the newscaster says. Oh, that was a lot of shit, wasn't it? <laughs> and I thought, well, of course it was. So that anyway, the Yiga project kicks off, and yeah, it's all good. It's all typical, you know. There's a there's sort of a love interest in there. There's you know, like a buddy comedy stuff. There's rivalries. It's all it's all it's all good stuff. But towards the end of the film, 
um, there's a sequence where, and this is a mild spoiler, there's a sequence where Charlie Hunnam is with his new co-pilot, and the Kaiju they're fighting, they, they knackers them effectively, and picks them up and starts to fly them because it's got wings out of the atmosphere mm. and they're flying up the atmosphere and they're saying look if you drop from this site you're gonna have to really like stop drop and roll because <laughs> it's gonna it's gonna, <laughs> it's gonna, it's gonna, gonna smart. yeah remember you really bend your knees when you land from outer space and um and then charlie hunnam just says well you know, that's us. We haven't got any weapons left to fight with. Because all through this this sequence, all through the whole film, they've been fighting with, like, rockets and plasma energy rays and stuff. And his co-pilot says, oh, what about the sword? And he's like, oh, yeah. And mm. the sword comes out of this this mech's arm, and it's just this huge serrated thing that sort of solidifies. And it cuts the monster in half in a single swipe. And then they drop and survive. And I thought, why don't you just all use that? Instead mm. of rockets and plasma and overloading energy cells, just a big sword, really, because you've just proved that, like, well, just they, they come out and you could just stab them and they're dead. So yeah, that was what I took from it. I just thought all of the all of the threat and all the sacrifice, literally a big sword. But yeah. see, I, I don't know if it's like some sort of in joke that I don't understand, but I I was like just just do that really. Pretty so much. I enjoyed yeah. it. It's yeah, an enjoyable I, film. And yeah. I, I remember being seriously impressed with the special effects in it. I thought they looked pretty stunning. Yeah, they really Because they had white, and, and the CG doesn't often have white, but it felt really quite visceral because they're moving did. slowly and stuff. And I think as well it's to do with the way that Guillermo del Toro shoots the movie. He, What he has a tendency to do is he doesn't use too many like floating kind of drone type shots he he'll have a shot as if you're standing on top of a building or if you as if you're on the street sort of thing so it's very much like a kind of you're there you're there it's like a pos it's a shot that can possibly be um that you could possibly see in real life if you if you see what i mean whereas often what happens in these movies when it has lavish special effects is you have these ridiculous swooping shots which literally only a drone could really capture and it's like it's it's just it takes you out of it a bit but i think something about the, the way that Guillermo del toro shoots the movie is quite clever and it really gives the, the feeling of weight to the uh, i find i find him like a really reliable filmmaker yes. i mean I, I haven't seen lady in the water is it lady in the water it's called no what was the one the shape of water the shape lady of water. in the water was the m night Shyamalan one but 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 i every film i've seen by him including like crimson peak is is so like visually luscious um and oh, yeah. there's there's always something to take away from it i, I as you see and chronos has ron perlman in it which is you know any film ron perlman is unstoppable well actually like ron perlman is in this Wearing golden shoes that apparently he bought, you like was gifted to him from the production, and he had them melted down to turn into like I don't know golden gauntlets for his wife or something. Good, yeah, absolutely <laughs> fine. Cl- classic Ron, classic Ron. Yeah, um, yeah, Graham and very reliable. Even Mimic is watchable. Just is that the one with um? From with what Mira Savina from '97. Yeah, that's the one. Who else is in it? I can't remember. It's, it's pretty forgettable to be honest. But. Mira Savino recently was on Mark Maron's podcast, and she yeah. said some interesting things about the Hollywood film industry. Okay. Anything you'd like to share? 
it, it involved Harvey Weinstein. It, it's, oh. it, she she was pretty eloquent about it, and and uh, mm. it, yeah, I, I would suggest listening to it if um, if you if you if you're interested in that. But yeah, just um, just the power the power of uh, key individuals in in that industry that can just like wipe out decades of someone's career just because they won't pull the knickers down. You think? Mm. Mm. Yeah, not ideal. Was there another film you wanted to discuss? Oh, God, sorry. Yeah, I was waiting for you then. Yeah, this is a real two-minute. I watched The Peacemaker from 1997 with George Clooney and Nicole Kidman and obviously Armin Mullerstahl. And um, this is a film, like, I, I I like George Clooney, in his in his uh, especially in his early movies, uh, up until he started directing, and then things get a little bit wobbly sometimes. Yeah, but speaking of wobbly, I, I mean, he would, this would have been in the period when he was still wobbling his head constantly when he was acting. Yeah, and, and stretching his neck and stuff mm. and, and like, like, like slowly closing or quickly closing one eye. Um, yeah, so this was this is just a, a nuclear thriller where um, Nicole Kidman is um, a, an expert on the sort of admin side of things, and George Clooney is effectively a sort of gung ho soldier, and they're thrown together as they try to stop a, a, a group of nuclear warheads being taken in Russia and used for nefarious purposes. And and it, it just felt I was watching it, and I thought like Nick, Nicole Kidman, you know, um, and George Clooney. I thought it would be a bit of an undiscovered gem, but it was. It felt really functional, and of mm. course, it's got to throw in. Like I should just expect it. But the thing is, this is like out of sight. You know, was was a really good film. Like I really enjoy out of sight, and um, that was what like around this time. It was late nineties, wasn't it? Out of sight was two thousand, maybe. But yeah, yeah around was, that time. But yeah, this was. There's there's a couple of sort of thrilling sequences, but it just feels. I don't know. It felt almost like a like a TV movie or something. Just mm. like there were people who, when I was reading about it after I watched it, saying, "Oh, you know, it's kind of like a like a more grounded James Bond." I guess at the time you'd have had, um, oh, what's his name, Pierce Brosnan, and so on. I thought, no, it's not at all. It just feels it's like a really forgettable functional thriller. I just I got nothing from it at all. Mm. Um, so yeah, I I, I don't really want. I've nothing else to say about it apart from it's just it was so by the numbers. But maybe this was, I mean, Dust Dawn was 96, which was obviously like a bit of an esoteric film for someone to break out of ER. Um, maybe it was just a way of him distancing himself from his persona in just in, in getting into movies and doing whatever came along. But I, yeah, yeah, it's not. It, it's yeah, not, I think it was just a, a stepping stone, probably. Yeah. I think Outside might be 98, actually, because Traffic was 2000, I think, and the Steven Soderbergh canon. But um, anyway, yes. Yeah, so, well, I thought I thought it was nineties because I'm thinking about the bagginess of some of George Clooney's clothing <laughs> in the film. And I, when you said two thousand, I thought, mm, is it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it might, it might be a little bit more snug his trousers at that point. Armin um, Muller style, by the way. I just want to give him a hug every time I see him. What an amiable man! Uh, do I know who he is? Yeah, you know Armin Muller style. Yeah, of course you do. Of course I do. <laughs> oh, Armin. Oh, oh, yeah, yeah. Sorry, yeah. No, I don't know who it is. Um, <laughs> um, let's move on then to my penultimate one, which is a John Carpenter film. Oh, here we go. Time to shine. Cool. Bit of copy boy. <laughs> cool Prince of Darkness. And this was, um, this isn't on any of the usual ones. It's on Sky Go. I've, I watched it on Blu-ray, but I noticed it's on Sky Go if you happen to have that. So, Yes, this was John Carpenter's film from 1987. Um, he made it just after Big Trouble in Little China and just before They Live. 
So still in his prime. Um, the plot is, the basic plot is, is a portal to hell, essentially, in a disused church. And Donald Pleasance, who's a priest, kind of teams up with Victor Wong, who's a scientist. So sort of religion and science combined. And they invite a bunch of PhD students to come and study it, um, this portal. Uh, but then it very quickly starts taking over their minds and turns them into murderous, psychotic people. It, it's all part of the titular prince's plan to come to Earth in physical form. Uh, but there's one man who can stand in his way, the very bland actor called Jameson Parker, um, yeah, he, yes, so he's kind of the heartthrob hero. Um, yes, so this, um, there are some issues with this film, I'd say. There's too much theorising and too much law and exposition that goes beyond the hour mark. Uh, and I, I thought, yeah, okay. I mean, there's context and there's just like really constantly digging a hole for yourselves. Um <laughs> It's a slightly spaced out performance by Donald Pleasance, I would say. And I noticed that just like in Halloween, he's basically hiding for most of the movie. Which is exactly what happens in Halloween. <laughs> oh, he he's in the bush frightening kids. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And then, of course, he pops up right at the end as the hero. And, you know, same thing happens here, spoiler alert. It's um, John Carpenter <laughs> does the music, of course. And it's one of his best scores, I would say. It's like this really oh, wow. lush, gothic choral synth. I say lush, but, you know, because it's like quite it's it's synth. So it's pretty it's pretty kind of cold sounding when he gets the the choral notes out. But it it really works here. Uh, It's a nicely diverse cast and they're all adults, young adults, but they act like adults. So that's good. Although the Asian-American guy is borderline with his comic relief moments um is he bouncing a basketball in like a server room <laughs> in an office no it doesn't go quite that far but some of the jokes he cracks Whew. um so yes it, it's it's got that contained setting thing that um and actually i suppose you've got the body takeover conceit of the thing obviously another carpenter's films i think it lacks the thing's clarity and simplicity and there are also elements of Precinct 13 as well in the way that they're all trapped indoors by these this crowd of psychos outside. And it's all over one night as well. And then it goes all a bit Dario Argento towards the end because it's not just hyper gory, but it also gets a bit surreal and you have multiple dream sequences and some quite strange reaching into mirrors type stuff towards the end, which is quite fun. Uh, it is enjoyable and it's intense. Probably a little bit too heady and talky to be as rewatchable as some of Carpenter's other work. I would put this in tier two Carpenter, I would say, along with like say Christine and They Live. I think it's about about there. Not not his finest, but definitely still in his heyday. I just realised that um, Victor Wong is the character of Egg Shen in uh, Big Trouble Little China. Of course. It's oh, amazing. Um, Jameson Parker, that name really doesn't ring a bell for me. No, he's... It's, even when you're watching on screen, it doesn't really ring a bell because it's like, you're nothing. I mean, he's got an impressive tash. 
Um, but he's just he's just a bit boring. He's just a bit bland. He's, just, uh, yeah. he's a nice guy, and it's like it just doesn't have much of a personality, you know. I mean, you think I, about someone like, um, what was Kurt Russell's character called in The Thing, or, um, or, or even Rowdy Roddy Piper in, in They Live. You know, they're kind of no, I don't, no. they're kind of swaggering. Yeah, they're heroes, but they're kind of a bit flawed. You know, Snake Plissken, the same. They've mm. got a bit of edge to them. Um, but yeah, he's just a goody two shoes, really, <laughs> and a bit dull. I, I'm gonna, I'm gonna have to watch this. So this is, you can pay. Do you say you've got the blue ruby? You can pay cash money for it. Yeah, I think I pay a, a couple of quid on Prime. Yeah, it's. I'm yeah, gonna it, watch this. It's worth a watch. It's, it's still, it's still unmistakably a John Carpenter film. It's not. Oh, it's, it's not good. up there with his finest, but. Um, just, just trying to think, because obviously, um, when you said um, Kurt Russell's name, I thought you were going to say In Big Trouble, which was Jack Burton, and we've got Snake Plissken, and then you mentioned Brad Order Piper, and his name is Nada. What is his name in the thing? You've got like Windows, Jones, Is it, Child, it Mac, Mac something? Mac? Or McCready. McCready, yeah. Yeah, McCready, that's it. If it was Mac and me, and every time it cut to him, we just played that sequence. Um, right, it's time. I'm going to watch Prince of Darkness is a film. That, what was the 1991 with um, Jürgen Prochnov in and Sam Neill that was amazing? Um, in the Mouth of Madness. Oh, that's a film that is. Yeah, that's a good film. That was, uh, yeah, that's pretty much, I'd say, that Carpenter's last great film. It's 1990, that is. I think it's a bit later than 1990. <laughs> I want to say 93, 94. Go on, then have a look. Prove oh, yourself no. wrong. <laughs> okay. Um, do continue. Um, so the, I'm going to do two and one here. Uh, I watched Ghost Rider, which I know you've covered on this on this podcast before, and Ghost Rider Spirit of Vengeance. And I don't know why. I just, because this has been that recent Nicolas Cage resurgence where his genius has finally been recognized for it is. Um, and I thought, well, it was the, I typed in Nicolas Cage and it, it popped up and I thought, you know, that is a film I haven't seen, so I will watch it. And it's just to say that the first Ghost Rider film from 2007 is really just kind of a pale marvel. It's just a an origin story of, you know, Nicolas Cage as the Johnny Blaze Ghost Rider character where his, mm. his, father, his father gets tricked by the devil he gets a curse and he's trying to get it lifted and there's a love interest and he jumps over helicopters every now and again, boom, boom, boom. Um, but it was, and, and I'm not going to go into depth because you've covered it, but I watched it and I thought, God, what a functional film that would never spin off a franchise. And then I watched the sequel, <laughs> didn't I? And um, I put it on and it, it's, have you, when you watch, have you see, ever seen Ghost Rider Spirit of Vengeance from 2012? Uh, no, I don't think right? so. It, it it's it's really I don't think I've in mainstream cinema seen a tonal shift like this right so the first film is really glossy it's like yeah. lots of like really weightless special effects and like sort of you know with CG always looks really light on screen yes I remember that. I remember this it's in brightly lit and then and of course Sam <coughs> sorry Sam Elliott's in the first one and Peter Fonda good um. And then the sequel kicks in, and at the end of the first one, to put it in context, spoiler alert, the ghost rider, Nicolas Cage, is riding off into the sunset to use his powers for good. 
and the Ghost Rider is just this basically cool version of him. The second one kicks off, and he is full tilt Nicolas Cage. You can you can you can tell that he's had much more of a handle in it because it's right. very much Nicolas Cage laughing wildly as the camera shakes in his face, sort of thing. And it's Idris Elba's in it, which sort of blew me away a little bit. And it's just him just hating the Ghost Rider character because the Ghost Rider in him is 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 kind of hungry for souls. Whereas mm. before it was like a you know we would take the souls of the evil. It's like they set our balls to that. And I don't know the comics, so maybe this is kind of you know taken from another story or another another writer's interpretation of it. But I was fully on board with it. But and it, it's very whereas the first film was. Um, rich and filmed in what was like Elio, New York. And there's lots of like really f- rich, full cinematography. This film is not filmed in New York. It's filmed in Romania. And there's a, there's a moment in it where Idris Elba leans into Nicolas Cage's troubled character and says, look at you. Do you know, there's a reason why you're here. There's a reason why you're in Romania, thousands of miles from your homeland. And I said to Idris Elba on my screen, that reason is because this is half the budget of the preceding film, Mr. Elder. That's the reason that you're in Romania, like making this like awful movie. Um, the, the plus points for the sequel are that the Ghost Rider character is much more torn and nasty now. It's more like an anti-hero sort of thing. But the film is just so... It's It just relies on Nicolas Cage pulling faces and laughing. And mm. it, it just it doesn't... It just feels like a separate film as opposed to a sequel. And it brings in all these problems that didn't exist in the first one. So you, you Ghost Rider Marvel canon. It feels a little bit like the, um, what would they call it? It was called like the, not the Dark Knight. There was a, there was a, there was a little sub, uh, they, they had a production company, Marvel, where they knocked out these things. And I think there was, um, Punisher Warzone was one of them as well. Mm. And it's, so you've got this like the 2007 version is this really glossy, quite, sort of timid Hollywood version of a, a Marvel sub-character that's probably pleased no one. And then you've got a sequel, which is really gritty and a bit nastier and yet doesn't really follow on is filmed in a completely different way is much cheaper and feels cheaper and is just, just feels like it doesn't really need to exist. So for me, <clears throat> I don't think I'm actually going to read some comics. I'm, I'm going to read some of the comics, see, see how they, they strike me. But I don't think anyone needs to see either Ghost Rider film. <laughs> okay. Yes. Um, I'm happy to go along with that guidance. Um, <laughs> the, the sequel is the last film made by Neville Dean and Taylor who you may remember were the directors of the Crank films as well. And Jonah. No, they didn't do Jonah Hex. Just looking at their filmography now. They wrote Jonah Hex. That one was bloody Josh Brolin. Um, that film was, I don't know if I mentioned it on the podcast. I watched it. It's about 70 minutes long and it's so dark, visually dark. Like I couldn't see what was happening. And it was just like they said, right, we've run out of money. All the actors have just got pissed and gone home. We, we're going to have to put something together. It was really bizarre, that film, Jonah Hex. And I fancy yeah. Josh Brolin as well. Not in that film, though. Yeah. So, But they haven't made a film since Ghost Rider, Spirit of Vengeance. So so what's your last film, babe? Um, it is called Miracle Mile, which is available on Prime as a paid 
item uh, and it's worth paying for. This is one of the few films by someone called Steve Dijanat. It was made in 1988 and it starts with Anthony Edwards. Good. He meets uh, Mayor Winningham and they fall for each other. This is set in L.A. They fall for each other and he offers to meet her um, after work at it was a, they have like a, a world in romance and then he offers to meet her after work at midnight right except a, a series of events means he oversleeps and he and he rushes to the cafe where she works but he gets her for like 3 a.m obviously too late anyway this public phone is ringing outside and he picks it up and he gets this panicked guy on the other end who's trying to deliver some sort of cryptic message. But as it dawns on Anthony Edwards, this message is suggesting that there's an impending nuclear attack coming within the next hour. So Anthony Edwards, in his state, he panics and he tells the people in the cafe the news that there's a nuclear attack coming. Now, this rumour spreads ridiculously rapidly partly thanks to Denise Crosby's colossal mobile phone but it 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 basically the 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 idea that LA is about to get hit by a nuclear missile spreads very very quickly and soon pretty much all of downtown LA is locked in a panic and and there are kind of like people are just trying to get out of the city um people are going crazy smashing up shops all sorts is going on. Now, in the midst of all this, Anthony Edwards is trying to reunite with Mayor Winningham um, uh, so they can get a helicopter out of town. Um, so we we assume that the world has just gone crazy. But then later on, we get this kind of sense that maybe actually, could the actual rumour be true after all? Could there actually be a nuclear attack coming? So it's mm. quite cool like that. It's a it's a very odd film. It's like it's not exactly a comedy. It's not exactly an action film. It's not exactly a horror. It's a very really quite strange, but utterly unique. It's got this really really lovely Tangerine Dream score. Good. Yeah. Nice. Incredible chemistry between Anthony Edwards and Mayor Winningham, who are both quite interesting looking people. Like they're not. I mean, he's not exactly like classic hunk, and she's not. It's a stunning beauty, but they 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 got a kind of uh, like an interesting look about them. I like it's a really nicely crafted film. It has like some cool little editing moments. Like there's one bit where there's like a shot of the full moon, and um, uh, there's a shot of the full moon, and and in the background you just see hear the howling of police sirens. So it's almost like wolves howling at the moon. It's it's pretty cool that sort of stuff. Really well made. And it's like it sounds ridiculous, the plot, because the reaction to this rumour isn't realistic as such. But it's really a satire about social panic in an environment of heightened tension, i.e. like in the midst of a Cold War and the threat of possible nuclear nuclear attack. There are there are cameos from uh, Jeanette Goldstein and none other than Brian Thompson, who plays a bleach blonde lycra clad fitness coach. Amazing. 
Um, Good. The tone wavers from slapstick and through satire to existential horror to kind of quite a strangely profound romance. And I really like the single night conceit. It gives it a sense of intensity and impending doom. There are elements of Martin Scorsese's After Hours and um, some Night of the Comet and a bit of Dawn of the Dead. And I'd say it's 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 the quintessential cult classic, I would say. Like it's when you look at all the elements, it's unsellable as a mainstream concept. It's it's flawed, but also brilliant. It's completely unique. It's handcrafted and idiosyncratic and it's totally of its time as well totally of the time of the cold war so yeah it's a really cool movie and it's highly recommended it's called miracle mile and where did you see this i i have i have obviously have the arrow video special edition blu-ray but you can watch (laughs) you can watch on prime uh paid i mean i guess if you use the arrow video channel i suspect it's on there as well so yeah definitely worth watching um i did when you were talking about it because the the, i've never seen this film but the plot um sounds really weirdly familiar and i don't know if i've seen like a horror anthology or something that kind of plays off it um but it was i can imagine that i can imagine it would be It, it it's an idea that does it can be stretched out thankfully to 90 minutes because it just it, it just escalates ridiculously to the point where it's just a riot at the end but it, even the riot is filmed in a really in a really cool way like it's almost like the riot has completely transformed like this street into almost like an alien landscape it's really cool it's really cool really well done You'll notice as well, something you haven't mentioned yet, is um, a band member in this film in one of his earliest roles was Peter Burke, who ended up directing Mark Wahlberg in a load of films. Amazing. Yeah, so it actually is quite cyclical. It's come around quite nicely there. Nice. So we've got to the, before we go to the Arkansas and, and a, a final point I want to make, um, what is your film of the week? Well, I think it has to be Miracle Mile. I, oh, I, nice. I think I like Three Days of the Condor. I read it, yeah. And I think Prince of Darkness is a good but not great John Carpenter film. But Miracle Mile is like it's such a it's such a hidden gem that I think it really has to be has to be seen. What, what drew you to it? Because Anthony Edwards isn't a typical leading man, and I've never heard of that. So what what drew you to I it? I think it's I have. A real attraction to like slightly odd um, 80s cult movies with like ensemble casts. So I'm thinking of stuff like this and uh, Repo, Repo Man. Man. Uh, <laughs> yes. <laughs> and um, uh, Dead End Drive-In, things like that, which yeah. I, I, I like the ones which aren't, they're not quite horrors. So, but they're just uh, Heather's as well. I think I might have just been in the nineties, maybe no, maybe late eighties. No, no, it's, yeah, I, I remember it here. It was quite safely in the eighties. <laughs> but yeah, but I I love those. I mean, people forget that, like, you know, I know the eighties. People mock the eighties for the kind of trash, straight to video trash that was around at the time. But there was also some really strange. Um, I, I don't know whether you'd count it as indie or what, but definitely indie sensibility 
to the to these movies and um so yeah this falls definitely falls into that kind of category i i'm uh, i'm feel i'm feeling a night of yours at some point soon we watch miracle mile um mm-hmm. heathers which i've also never seen and also that film is it in the night sky whatever it's called the last of night but I, need, I, see these, I keep forgetting to watch these amazing films. The fact that you sighed after just saying the title. Oh, I need to watch these films with my eyes and my feet. I know. So I mean, I, I'm kind of thinking, oh, shall I watch it tonight? I know I'll just fall asleep to it and I'll just have to watch it again. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, um, my um, my selection wasn't as grand as yours, but I, I'm going to go with Spartan because it, it's nice to watch a film that you I knew I enjoyed, but I didn't realise how much I enjoyed it. Like sitting there soberly watching it and thinking... Oh, this is like this is really my thing, and uh, it's my as far as I'm concerned, it's as far as I'm willing to go with the Jack Reacher character. Um, it, it just feels it feels quite unique, and it's I also really enjoy Val Kilmer in films. The fact that he did this, and then the next year he did Kiss Kiss Bang Bang. I mean that's a hell of a that's a hell of a back to back for me because that's yes. also one of my favorite films. So I should just look at his. I wonder what else he did around that time. I'll have to have a little goosey. Um. So there's only two things to to, to uh, a little, little outro. The first thing is I'm going to set the Arkansas for the next episode. So last week we had Liv Tyler to Jackie Chan. And this week we've got Eva Mendez to Donald Pleasance. Crikey. Yeah, cross-generational. Eva Mendez uh, obviously was in... Um, Ghost Rider and Donald Pleasance was in uh, uh, the Prince of Darkness, so that's the link this week. Right. Okay. I think this sounds doable. <laughs> um, well, obviously, it is doable. It will be doable. There's been a lot of two steppers coming out recently, and I. Pff, and it's, it's time to slow that. It's time to slow that shit right down. Um. So yeah, Rupert. There's nothing else to say apart from. Um, I was actually uh, the other day. I was out having lunch with Michael Pena's mother, mm. and um, I was chatting chatting away to her. We were having a really nice time, and she he kept on ringing it. We were having lunch, and he was like, "Oh, can I borrow five of them?" And then he'd bring back, "Oh, can I borrow another ten?" actually, "Oh, mum, can you transfer? Oh, can you transfer it?" And then, "Oh, can you come and wipe my bum?" And eventually, I took a phone of her and I said, "Christ, he's a right Michael Pena ass, isn't he?" <laughs> <laughs>